Good evening. And welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors at St. Philip the Deacon Lutheran Church. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olive Lutheran of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith in Life lecture series, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. This is the uh, second event in what is already, it's hard for me to believe, but it's the ninth season of the Faith in Life lectures. And uh, we're thrilled to have you with us. Uh, these events, if you've not been here before, are an opportunity for us to hear nationally and even internationally known speakers reflect on how the Christian faith is connected to different dimensions of everyday life. And just a word about the flow for the evening, we'll hear from our speaker. After that, we'll have a chance to ask him some questions in an open mic. Q&A session, and the mics are going to be right in the aisles there, so be thinking, we're going to pull them up after the program starts, be thinking about questions you would like to ask him as he is speaking. Over the years, we've had, as you might imagine, with nine se uh, seasons, we've had a variety of topics, everything from faith and politics to faith and lifelong learning, we've had some quirky ones like faith and humor and faith and comic books even. Tonight we're doing something a little different. We've never had a musician before, so we're going to be talking about faith and music. And our speaker is not only an internationally recognized composer and guitarist, but also someone who has battled a neurological disease called focal dystonia. And he's going to talk about that for us tonight. I always ask our speakers if they will share a little something with me that I can include in the introduction that uh, is not in their official bio. And I'll lift up two things tonight. Uh, if you do look at his bio, the very end of it says he was awarded in 2010 uh, the Public Neurology Award given by the American Academy of Neurology. He asked me to mention that as a recipient of that award, he is in the august company of people like Mike J. Fox, Paul Allen of Microsoft, Janet Reno, and uh, everyone's favorite vocalist from The Sound of Music, Julie Andrews which is kind of cool. Uh, he also mentioned that his name, McLaughlin, in Irish, means son of the lakes, and so it's appropriate that he lives here in Minnesota. At this point, I would typically invite the speaker to come up and welcome him, but to begin tonight's presentation, we're actually going to watch a four-minute video about his life and his disease. So if you will turn your attention to the screen. Practice never 
really felt like work to me, and I practiced a lot. By the time I was 15, I was already in the recording studio. Wheels of Fortune, take one. My parents were relieved to hear that I'd enrolled in college. A little less relieved to find out that I was going to be in a school of music, but despite their concerns, I graduated with honors. I never wanted to sound like anybody else, so I developed some unorthodox skills on the guitar, and that's really what helped me establish my signature sound. building my fan base and winning some awards along the way. I knew if I followed my dreams and did the hard work that eventually the record industry would notice. And almost 20 years to the day that I started playing guitar, I signed an international recording contract with the Virgin Records Group. My first release made it to the Billboard Top 10.
their sense of self-worth, their sense of being a select individual, that this is someone who's not only very good at what they do, but exceedingly good at what they do. So then when this condition comes along, all that gets taken away by this.
into the light. I guess that means I must have been on some dark roads over the last few years, and it's it's true. Um, my journey with uh, the dystonia started really in uh, in the late nineties. I was much younger back then. <laughs> And my career was really happening, and it was an exciting, exciting time. I was playing the guitar in this style back then. Like I said, I played this piece. I had to actually relearn, um, you know, transfer every note from this hand to this hand and this hand over to this hand to be able to, to play this for you. And, and, and let me tell you, there's, that was quite a journey. It was really quite a journey. If people have, have asked, really, what is this style of guitar playing? So maybe before we go any further into, into my talk, I should at least explain. How many of you have seen someone play the guitar this way? A few of you? A lot of you haven't. Would you like me to at least explain just briefly in about 30 seconds how I'm doing this? Okay, a hundred years ago, if I had taken out my guitar and played that piece for you, it would have sounded like this. not in the orchestra. <laughs> Even though I'll give a quick plug that I'll be here playing with the Hopkins High School Orchestra in February, so watch for that. But it's not, the guitar is not excluded from the orchestra because the guitar players are a bad influence. <laughs> Although we might be. It's a really quiet instrument, and the sounds that I love that come from the guitar that I'm trying to share with you are sounds that typically you can't hear unless you're really pretty much draped over the guitar the way guitar players be over their instruments. So, uh, so if I take one finger on one string and just tap the note, I didn't have to strum it or plug it with a pick. I just, all I did was tap the note. And thank you, Les Paul, for amplifying the help us amplify the guitar. Now you can hear the note, right? Now I have two choices after I do that. I can either pick my finger up without making any sound, or I can pick my finger up and make a tone with the open string. It's kind of like two for one. Why did 
during the busiest time of my career, I was playing pieces that, and I don't know if you know this, but I don't like to watch my fingers when I play. Did you notice? <laughs> because I'm kind of lost in the music. And I never ever really had to think about what I, what I was doing. So it was quite a shock for me when in the midst of my concert tours, I would suddenly not be able to play something I had played successfully and perfectly thousands of times before. And the toughest part was, when it first started happening, I was playing solo concerts. And, and of course, when you play solo concerts, if you play a bad note on stage, everyone in the audience knows who played the bad note. <laughs> it's not like when I'm with my ensemble and a bad note comes out and they look quickly at the keyboard player. But it really was quite a shock, and it, and it took three years for me to, to get diagnosed. I've been sent home. I don't know if any of you have had this experience where you go to a doctor's office and you say, here's what's happening with me. I think there's something wrong. And a couple hours later, you're sent home, told that you're, there's nothing wrong. And in fact, my hand and my arm was MRI'd and x-rayed many times, and each time I was told, Billy, there's nothing wrong with your hand. Are you sure you don't want to see a psychologist? <laughs> and I tell you what, I love my job. I, I love to be sharing my music. And so it really wasn't anything to do with stage fright or anything. But it took three years to get a diagnosis of this rare condition. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of dystonia. Well, great. You're the only ones who know that you can't buy a plane ticket to Estonia. <laughs> it's going to go on special at Delta. You can't fly to Estonia. It's not a country in Eastern Europe. The first time I heard the word Estonia was when I was told that I had dystonia. And here it turns out that it's the third most common movement disorder in the world behind Parkinson's and tremor. And I've never heard it ever before. But here I was in a place where uh, it wasn't going to go away. Because as much as I was relieved by finally getting the diagnosis after three years of thinking I was going crazy, the neurologist I finally saw at uh, Sister King followed up the description of what I had with the information, which was that Billy, it's incurable. We, we've never seen any, uh, we don't really have any effective treatments for it. We've never seen anyone cured from it. And you really better think about what you want to do with your life. Because your guitar playing days are really probably close to being over now. I was hanging on adjusting my concert set lists and leaving off all the hard music and lying through my teeth to my audiences, who said, why didn't you play my favorite, that freeway song about the freeway? Why didn't you play it tonight? And I would say, instead of admitting that there was something wrong, I would just say, oh, I've played that enough times. I'm moving on artistically to something else. And that wasn't the truth. So faith in music sounds a transformation. I, I, I brought my description of what I wanted to talk about to Tim, and 
And in it, um, I, I made the statement that we, we choose to, to, to practice faith or not. Much the same way that a person chooses to practice their instrument. And I have a love for music education. I love music education. One of the things I love about music education is the simple fact that nobody sounds good the first day they pick up their instrument. Everyone stinks. And that's a place of common ground for us. It's a place of common ground that we all start at this, that no one's great at their instrument the day that they, that they pick it up. Something feels good to me about that. And I've taught from the littlest of little kids, including preschool Montessori kids, to preparing people to go on to university level performance degrees. And I see the same thing going on, which is, that there's some of my students who, who get it, who get the fact that playing music involves action and effort. And they take their music home and they practice and they come back and you can tell. And there's other students who, I think by thinking about this piece of music, I will master it without even getting my instrument out and of course, that doesn't work, does it? <coughs> With music, it's very obvious. It's like sports. It's like watching competitive sports. You can tell that those athletes that are really, really dedicated to practice and to putting into action what they want to see happen in their lives. And I really see this as, as, as a connecting point with, with a discussion about faith and about transformation. Um, the English language, my, my, my college roommate was from Africa, okay? He, was, he, he attended USC for his master's in linguistics, and he went on to Stanford and got his PhD in linguistics. And through talking with him, here's, here's a young man who spoke seven languages fluently when I first met him. English just being one of them. French, Lingala, Swahili, Iranda, Kirundi, I can't remember the rest of them. Really amazing. And what he helped me to understand, and it ties into this, this discussion very clearly, is that English has limited the way in which we think about things. In fact, every language does. That's why it's kind of cool to learn another way to talk. I mean, I speak English and about this much jazz. And that's about it. But with, with English, um, an interesting thing happened when, when the King James was originally translated. And if you'll stay with me, I'm, 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 even, I'm so glad I have my guitars and my crop up here right now because I, I feel like I'm in new, new territory for myself. But one of the things I wanted to share with you, again, it ties into this idea of practice. And faith being in action. Um, because when the, when the King James was translated, um, it, came, it came from the Greek. They were translated from Greek into English. And in, in Greek, does anyone know the word for faith in Greek? Okay, well, I'll try to pronounce it correctly. I'm glad you don't know it because then I can say it any way I want. Pistuo. 
Pistuo is the Greek word for faith. And it's a, it, it, it's a word that isn't quite a noun, and it's not quite a verb. It has compound nuances to it. In fact, it's actually much more a verb than it would be considered a noun in Greek. And so when they translated that word in, into English, you'll find that in the King James, they never used the word faith more than once in a sentence, even when the original text used the word pistol. They would change, they would use faith one time, and then they would use the word believe the second time. And the, only, the unfortunate thing about it is that part of that's because in English we just don't have a, a verb form of this idea of faith. In fact, if we did, it might be the word faith to fade. So we're kind of stuck, and I, I was stuck as a young kid thinking that faith was some, it was a thing. I, you either had it or you didn't. And if it's a thing, well, maybe it's a small thing that can fit in your pocket. And if it's a thing and it can fit in your pocket, your faith could fall out of your pocket, roll down the street, and you would lose your faith if it was a thing. But I think we all know that there's something more to it. And when I was living in California, I had the great pleasure to join um, a very controversial preacher quite a lot. His name was Dr. Gene Scott. The late Dr. Gene Scott talked about the ABCs of faith. And it was action. What, what he talked about was recognizing this shortcoming in English for the word faith. And he said what faith really is, it's action based upon belief and supported by confidence. The A, B, C's of faith. And the way that he described it to people was to say, well, what if you're at the Grand Canyon and there's a railing in front of you hanging over this enormous cliff and you believe that it's strong enough to hold you. But until you actually run up to it and lean against it and hang yourself with all your weight on that railing to look over and see what beautiful things are down below. You really haven't experienced what this duo really means, which is to have action and to have an experience based upon your belief, supported by confidence. But it's so similar in the way that I see how it works with learning music. Because again, a student is going to have to, at some point, not just think of the music, but they're actually going to have to have to participate. Boy, that's the longest I've talked without playing anything on my guitar in a long time. So transformation is is really what uh, tonight is all about. For for me. There's a sense of transformation that I was able to play that first piece for you. It was a piece I knew before. So I knew the piece. I simply had to transfer the skill sets from one side to the other. There's another level of transformation that happens when you're not relearning something, but you're finally in whatever new state you're in. You're finally creating something new. And so I want to play a piece that I, I, I never did play as 
the right thing to declare. I, I wrote this piece, and I knew that I had turned the corner in my own life when instead of just relearning things from the earlier part of my career, I was actually able to start creating. Because in the end, if we're, if we're made in the image of our creator, and our creator is a creator, then maybe we should think about things that we create. So this is a this is a newer piece. And you know, it's pretty difficult to put a category on this kind of music that I'm playing. I hope, I hope you like it. But people, they haven't really figured out what to even call this style of guitar playing. So I would just say to you, I, I demonstrated how it works. I'm just tapping the notes. Well, there's tap dancing. Why don't we call it tap guitar? So if it's tap guitar, and I've been playing this way for many decades, I'm one of the old guys playing this way even though you didn't know about the style of guitar playing. That would make me the tap daddy. That's my nickname, and that's the name of this piece.
I might be one of the only guitar players you've ever made who has to say that I had to learn the instrument twice. And it's just kind of a weird thing to say. And people always ask me, Billy, how in the world did you do that? How did you manage to slug it out? And I'll tell you what, the truth is this. Uh, I gave up many times. I might have been here for last year's series had I not had those moments where I was very unsure if I would ever get to the place where I would be able to play at a level where that this music demands. It's pretty demanding music to play. And I'm not proud of the fact that, that there were times where I really... i got to tell you about the first one. Can I tell you about that? Yeah. Can I share it with you? So, I was a couple of years into this process of trying to relearn some of my original work because I thought that if I couldn't play some of my early music, I really wasn't cutting in and I, I wouldn't really be able to give my fans what they expected of me. And of course, as I talked to God, about which song to start with first, I heard the voice come back and it said, start with the hardest one. <laughs> I thought, oh, really? Am I really going to have to? Oh, my goodness. So that's what I did. So I start with this really, really hard piece. And I'm two years into to trying to play this piece. And I'd, gotten, I'd actually gotten fairly far with the early part of it, but there was a section in the middle that was just giving me absolute fits. And, and uh, this particular morning, I had already spent four hours on it, and it finally dawned on me, who are you kidding? Nobody, nobody can do this. Nobody can come. Nobody can go from being a right-handed guitar player to being a left-handed guitar player and actually play at a very high level. I mean, if you could do things like that, there would be pitchers in baseball that when they blow out their shoulder, they would just pick up the ball with the other hand and get back out there and, and compete, right? I mean, it's one thing to learn how to throw the ball and not look clumsy. It's another thing to get to a level where you're actually striking out major league ball players. And essentially, that's what I was trying to do, was to try to get to this place where I could compete again within the music industry and within the guitar community. And I really had very little hope of, of doing this. And this particular day it really came clear to me that I was just a fool for putting this much investment. I'd be better off learning about shoes so I could sell shoes for <coughs> And that morning I saw my life flashed past me, just like that list of everything that was that I was losing a hold of. And and I got so upset that I started tear. I was crying, and I took my guitar and I put it in its case, and I threw the case into the closet, and I slammed the closet door, and I said, "That's it. I'm done." I'm not doing it. I am going to go do something else. And, and uh, 
I'm going to have to figure it out fast, because here I am, a single man, kids, and no income, and it had already been a rough several years. But I noticed that it was a little afternoon, and that means it's lunchtime. I think I'm going to take myself out to cheer myself. I'm going to take myself to lunch. Just me, I'm going to figure out my life right here. And off I went to my favorite little restaurant. And uh, it's a Thai, it's a Thai cuisine place. So it's all food from Thailand. And I love this chicken green curry. I always cheer up after I've had it. And so I get my favorite lunch, and I'm thinking about my life, and what am I going to do next? And I don't have a sweet tooth, so I never take a fortune cookie, but considering what was going on in my life at that time, I figured, oh, I'm going to take a fortune cookie, and maybe there'll be some advice in there. <laughs> you guys, that was seven and a half years ago. And that little piece of paper that came out of that fortune cookie is taped the dashboard of a very sexy minivan out in the, in the parking lot. <laughs> Why well, have a lot of guitars and stuff? The minivan makes sense for a guy with a shirt like this, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's been taped to two other minivans that have since passed on into the afterlife. I've kept this little piece of paper because it's proved to me that God can give me fortune. That piece of paper said the simplest, most powerful phrase that I needed in that moment. And what it said was, many people fail because they quit too soon. And I mean, I couldn't believe it. I had a documentary crew filling, you know, following me around for two years. I had all kinds of people pulling for me. I had given up that morning and said I wasn't going to do it. And here's this piece of paper. Many people fail. And I've since come to understand that there were a lot of things it didn't say that are equally powerful to consider. You know, it didn't say many people fail because they're not talented enough. It didn't say many people fail because they weren't born into the right community. It didn't say many people fail because they're not good looking enough. It said something simple, something that I could act Upon. And now we're back to talking about choosing and acting and putting into action what we believe in and what we want to have happen. Not just for ourselves personally. And the other part of my description about my talk, I, I wanted to include this, this concept that when one of the things that I love about art education and music education is the idea that through the process of bringing the abstract into reality, which is what we do when we write a piece of music. If I sit with a blank sheet of paper in front of me and I just let my mind imagine some notes, that process that our kids learn, hopefully, I know they're learning here in Hopkins, the great music program we have going on here, Thank goodness. But this, this process of, of pulling from the abstract and successfully bringing something into reality is, is something that I think relates to ideas like justice, 
to an abstract concept. If I have no experience in my life of ever successfully experiencing what it's like to bring something from the abstract into reality, then how am I going to have confidence that, that I would ever live in a community that would value uh, that process of, of bringing values like justice to fruition within within our communities. So this pro this process of learning music and the, the process of, of of putting your faith into action on a personal level really means so much more when it starts for musicians. As a music educator, what I want to see is I want to see my kids playing music with other kids. And what happens in that process, again, it's, a, it's to build an ensemble within music, is to get people agreeing on things like rhythm, to, to work in harmony together. And I really see that uh, the same benefit of, of teaching kids to play an ensemble. Uh, when I look at what it's like to, to go through periods of your life where you're not connected to a faith community, and I've been through those times. And I know what a difference it makes to have community, to have ensemble within, within the important part of your life that has to do with faith. And so I, I thought I would um, I thought I would actually demonstrate a little ensemble community by inviting another musician to come up here and to, to, to do a to do a song with another doesn't that sound like a good idea? Aren't you sick of the guitar by now? <laughs> There'll be time for one more guitar piece. But I thought it would be a great time for me to invite uh, my friend and fellow musician in my ensemble, our ensemble, it's called Civil Gifts. I want to welcome Heather Gardwork to come out and play a piece called In the Water. And it's a it's a piece that, that I co-written. Hi Heather, come on. Everybody say hi. I had grouped my pinky and 
together to be able to play this, but I, I don't want to say any more other, I just want you to hear the words in this, in this piece. And I'm going to do Heather a favor. If I'm going to sing background vocals, I better have a piece of gum. <laughs> so my breath doesn't make me pass out.
what a wonderful story. Thank you, Billy, very much. Uh, we're going to have time for some questions in just a couple minutes. Uh, John, if you're out there and you want to set the mics up, that would be great to turn them on. Uh, I'm going to make a couple quick announcements as he does that and as we let Billy chew on that gum for a moment. <laughs> The first announcement is I just want to plug the next Faith and Life event. It's in your uh, programs, uh, Friday, February 3rd, 2012. That'll be after Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year. Uh, Father Gregory Boyle, uh, a Jesuit priest from Los Angeles who works with gangs there. He has the largest gang intervention program in the country called Homeboy Industries. Some of you may have heard of his book, Tattoos on the Heart, which I commend highly to you, in fact, uh, you, you were listening to the great music of Jeff Elstad. Uh, Jeff, where are you? Somewhere? Oh, he's way back there. Jeff has been our intro and outro musician since the beginning of the series. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I mention him at this point because a year or so ago I got a, a book from Amazon as a gift, which was Tattoos on the Heart. I had no idea who it was from. And it was indeed from Jeff, so thank you for introducing me to it. I think Father Boyle is going to be fabulous, so I hope you can make it to that. Um, if you would like alerts about upcoming events, including that one, you can leave us your email on the green sheet that is in your program tonight. You can also like the Faith and Life uh, Facebook page at facebook.com slash faith and life. It's a, both of those ways, email and the Facebook page are great, simple, easy ways for us to stay in touch with you, very cost-effective. And you can leave, leave these sheets on the table uh, as you exit or at the table uh, where some of Billy's CDs are available. And by the way, Billy has some CDs available in the, I always want to call it the narthex, in the foyer. <laughs> you can see him and he'll sign those for you after, after the event. Um, and then I want to say a few words of thank you. Uh, from the beginning of this series, these events have always been and continue to be free and open to the public thanks to the amazing generosity of our corporate and individual sponsors. They are listed in your program. I'll mention just the corporate ones, Thriving Financial for Lutherans, Productivity Inc., a Plymouth-based company, Luther Seminary, TCF Bank, Leaders Manufacturing, uh, McLaurin Institute at the University of Minnesota, Fuzzy Duck Design and the Bookcase, as well as the presenting churches. Many of the individuals and uh, representatives from the organizations that sponsor this series are here tonight, and you are here thanks to their generosity, and so would you help me thank them. Okay, we're going to take um, a few minutes here for some questions, if uh, you're up to it, Billy, so uh, please, if you have questions. I just finished, since no one's yet at the, at the mic, I'll, I, I'll say I finished a, another book by Eric Taxis, who was our final speaker this year. He also runs a lecture series in New York, and at this point in the evening, in his event, he says, and if you would please use the proper punctuation mark when you are done, by which he means please ask a question, not make a speech. <laughs> And I turn it off, and 
something clicks in my mind, a, a series of notes, or maybe a set of words. And so it's, been, it's different for me all the time. I, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I have a little melody in my head, honestly, from, from a dream. I've had several pieces that have come to me in, dream, in actual dreams. And other times, it can be a real craft, sort of a craft-oriented approach. Um, I love the idea of ex exploring. I, and I'm very much a guitar composer. Um, I, I love what the guitar can do that other instruments can't do. I can play two middle C's on my guitar, and a piano only has one middle C. And my two middle C's, even though they're both middle C's, they sound a little bit different. I, I love spending time on my instrument, and I think part of, uh, part of how I've been able to come up with as many different things on the guitar is because I spend a lot of time doing it. So, um, I do think it's important to have structure to pieces also. For me, growing up listening to the radio from, let's see, I got my first Panasonic little battery-operated radio that I hid under my pillow that my parents didn't know about because I liked to listen to KDWB back then. Um, 6.30 on the AM and so I grew up listening to, to, to song structure, to you know, to the Beatles and to, to other great pop music. And I do like structure, and I very much write my songs in in, in sections. And I think another thing is you just can't be afraid to make a mistake. I, I think that's another kind of dovetail off of the conversation about about how do you put your faith into action? And part of it is not being afraid to, to make a mistake or not being afraid to to simply do something. Um, I, part of what was difficult for me in relearning the instrument is I, I had been so good at one time, and, I, and now all of a sudden I wasn't good, and I had developed some perfectionism in my early part of my career. I used to be able to play these pieces just perfect without thinking about them, and all of a sudden I was faced with this degradation of skills, and it, it really taught me that perfectionism isn't really very useful in life, you know, and more, more than anything, it holds you back from experiencing the richness and fullness of what it's like to take risks and to, and to make mistakes. So just be brave and start writing. That's what I say. Anybody else have a question? Question about the onset of the disease in your guitar playing. Uh, prior to your disease, were you a, a tapper or a finger picker or a flat picker? And did you have to learn a different style or just translate tapping to tapping left to right? Uh, I was an everything player, and it's still tough for me because a good sixty percent of the pieces that I've composed for my instrument, and I love these pieces. I, I can't I can't play them without ten healthy fingers. Right now I have eight healthy fingers, and, and some of my pieces I just can't do without the other two fingers. So it it's, it hurts a little when I'm at a concert and some people don't know about my story and they shout out the name of a song that I'm physically unable to play that 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 I want to be able to play that that hurts. So my skill set is 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 much. Narrower now, but you know sometimes we can do less. We can do more with less. Sometimes having every single thing at your disposal doesn't get you anywhere in life. I 
And so I'm trying to do more with less um, as far as uh, the bag of tricks that I have. I have less tricks in my bag of guitar playing skills than, than I used to, but I think I do more with the ones that I still have. Hi, I am also a struggler with focal dystonia, and I've never met anyone else who has it, so I have like 300 questions, but I'll try to keep it to two. I'm just like thinking, wow, I would love to just talk all night with you about this. The first one is just, um, is your left hand your dominant hand, and if so, has it affected writing and how do you handwriting and how do you handle that? And the second question is, do you know if you're at risk for it moving up your arm at all? And thank you for the work that you do on behalf of this. Well, and I do I do a lot of work for the Dystonia Medical Research Foundation. I was just forwarded on the board this last year and I thought to myself, any board that runs me, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a great organization and, and uh, no, I'm, I'm right-handed. And my healthy hand is my, my right hand. It's confusing how we talk about guitar players being left-handed or right-handed. It, it all has to be which, which hand would normally hold the pick. So now, normally if I held the pick, I would be called a, a, a left-handed player because it would be my left hand that would hold the pick. But um, uh, your second question um, about the risk that I'm at you know, I have been told by several dystonia experts that because I have dystonia already happening in one part of my body, that indeed, through overuse or through really pushing myself very hard, I could be at a very high risk that it would develop in this hand. And that is something I think about every day. You know, to, I, I don't know about you, but I love my job. You know, I love, love, love playing music. and and. Who knows when the last day that I'm going to get to do my job will come. I, I hope, you know, I mean, you can say that about getting hit by a bus, I guess. If dystonia could take away my guitar playing for a second time. It, it, could, it could happen, but it, it might not. And I try to live my life in such a way that if today is the last day I get to do what I love, I'm really going to do it. You know, it's not going to be a mediocre day. DystoniaMN.org. We have a, a monthly support group meeting in St. Paul. People from all over the Twin Cities come. And just like you said, um, we have people walking in the door who have had dystonia for, for a decade and never met another person with it. And it's pretty powerful. Again, community, bringing community together, people who, who need each other. So we'll, we'll talk. Hope, hopefully you can wait around afterwards. Um, question. Billy, go back before the uh, fortune cookie, when you were really in the depths, what got you going in the first instance? And then beyond that, today, how do you look at your life compared to before the disease hit you in the first instance? Um, I'm not sure I catch the, fir the, the first part of the question was what, before well, the fortune cookie? Thing. Yeah, before the fortune cookie, clearly you were in the depths. Right. The fortune cookie story, you had already started yeah. back up. Now, gotcha, now I gotcha. The fact is, you know what, you guys, I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> I just, I've loved music. I started playing professionally when I was 15. And, 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 you know, I've done all kinds of other odd jobs and everything, too. But music was always what made me feel alive and feel like I was doing what 
I thought I was here to do, which was to answer um, to that call of my creator to get out and love other people, and I like to do that through, through doing music. That's that's my purpose and my meaning, as I understand it. Um, and then. I can say this about your second question. I don't know how it happened, you guys, but the worst thing that ever happened to me, honest to goodness, has been the best thing that ever happened to me. In January, coming up, I'll be out in California shooting a new national PBS special performing with a 30-piece orchestra. I never had that opportunity back when I was a hot shot. <laughs> I had to go through Estonia for people to even notice what this, this is not commercial music, is it, you guys? You're not going to hear this music on the radio, are you? You know, this is an, it's, it's, a, it's an art that I love, but I, I know it. I'm just telling you, if, if the worst thing that ever happened to me, honestly, has become the best thing that's ever happened to me, if that can be true for me, I don't know how. But I think it could be true for anybody in this room. That's what I'll say about that. Yes? Um, well, you told us about your, uh, well, basically your diagnosis and you picked your guitar up and you wanted to learn to learn again. You went after that tough <coughs> song. I was wondering if you, maybe now or in a few minutes, be able to play that for us. We could we could close out with that song actually. Tim will let me. It's only two and a half minutes. It's short. Should we close with the song? Thank you. 